So here we go. I want to invite you to Galatians chapter 1. I want to open up the text with you, read the first chapter of the book of Galatians, and begin to unpack what we see there and the calling that it has on our lives as individuals, families, businesses, relationships, friendships, and then ultimately the life of the church. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have access to a Bible, maybe not a smartphone, or, or maybe if you're like me, a smartphone, Bible is actually a distraction for you, um, then, then here's what we want to put a Bible into your hands. And if you would, just do me a favor, and if you'll raise your hand and hold it there, one of our ushers will come and put a Bible into your hands. Uh, this for us is a very tangible way in which we, we want you to realize that this isn't just a time where you sit back like a spectator and pretend like there's some expert in the front of the room and just listen to them pontificate on the Bible, but instead this is a corporate practice. This is a time in which we together begin to sit under the Bible, and we begin to let it align our thoughts. We begin to assume, I know this is crazy, that if, if we bump up against something in the Bible that we don't like or disagree with, we begin to assume that we're wrong. We begin to assume that, that we're the thing that has to be shaped, and we allow the Bible to shape us as a corporate practice. This gives us identity. So as you make your way to Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to give you maybe just a little bit of where we've been, uh, just briefly, I think, where we want to go, uh, what will happen from here on out, and, and what I want to accomplish in our time together. So starting two weeks ago, we began uh, a six-week series on what we would call our core convictions, our DNA. What, who are we? What, what, are the things that, what are the things that we'll be open-handed about and, and be happy to disagree upon? And then what are the things that we're close-handed on? What are the things that, that we won't negotiate on, that we're, we're, we're happy, um, happy to, to share this with you and compel others, and, and we're okay if this bothers you? Like We won't apologize for these things. And so first and foremost, we believe that the narrative of, the narrative of the Bible tells us something about God that we believe is good news. And we're, we get this word gospel is a, a, literal, a literal kind of derivative of words that, that the Greeks and, and that specifically the Roman government used to describe a kingdom that was coming through force, an empire that was expanding by violence, that we have now hijacked as Christians. And what our gospel is, is that a kingdom is coming, but this kingdom is different. And that is good news. I mean, it's not just good news because it's true. It's good news because it's good, right? As we would say, the, the phone book is true. The phone book has a lot of reliable, helpful information, but that doesn't make it good news. What we have is good news, that there is a king coming, a king that has died in our place. This king doesn't come and send his subjects to die and suffer for his kingdom, but this king jumps in front of the army and dies in the place of his whole kingdom, such that now we have a new standing where the last are now made first. The, those that are oppressed will be exalted. Those that are oppressors will be made low in this kingdom. This good news. It's good news. Jesus has done something for us that has been accomplished and finished, just that now we simply rest in it, we trust in it, and, and on a regular basis, we want to compel others to know this good news and believe it. We believe it actually demands a response. And so for the next little bit of time, and every time that we get together, I'm, I'm going to compel you with this good news. I, I want to make an appeal to you, such that you can't sit idly by and go, that's interesting, but instead, such that this changes us. And that very act of compelling people to believe and see Jesus for who he is, such that we follow him, we're changed by him, we are made his disciples, is what we refer to as the mission of the church. That's our mission. That's the second thing that we, we don't want to waver on. We're, we're on a mission. We're called out people. We're not just spectators. 
We're not just consumers of something, but instead we are on a mission. God has accomplished something for us such that now we are deliverers of good news of his victory. This is important for us, especially how we define mission and the kind of mission we want to talk seriously about. As we would say at this, we, we don't think that it's our job to save the world, right? It's not your responsibility to save the world. It's your responsibility to tell the world about the one who's already saved it. And this is good news to get to share. And this is a load off of your shoulders. You don't have to alleviate poverty. You don't have to alleviate suffering. There is one who was impoverished and suffered in our place so that now a new kingdom is coming in. You get it? And we get to tell people about this kingdom. And we get to image for them. We get to show them what an embassy of this new kingdom looks like here and now. The third thing we see here, we're going to spend our time together today, is what we would call simplicity simplicity not just that we love the gospel not just that it puts us on a mission but we are devoted to fighting off everything that runs counter to this it is our temptation to replace the gospel with things that feel good or fit more perfectly into our worldview so i want to read you galatians chapter 1 a letter from paul to a church who failed in this regard who is at the very least were struggling to see the gospel as primary, the good news of Jesus' finished work for us as primary, such that they had begun to, begun to be loyal to secondary issues. And here we are in verse 1, Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Christ, or through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for i did not receive it from any man nor was i taught it but i received it through a revelation of jesus christ for you have heard of my former life in judaism how i persecuted the church of god violently and tried to destroy it and i was advancing in judaism beyond many of my own age among my people so extremely zealous was i for the traditions of my fathers but when he who had set me apart before I was born 
and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May this word jump out and away from being simply ink on a page to become that which it is for us, sustenance as the word of God. May God actually speak to us and share some impartation of himself and revelation of his character such that we're changed by it. Paul is writing a letter to the Galatians and he has a tone about it that is severe. It's serious. Now for those of us who've been kind of digging through uh, different books of the Bible, as is our custom, there'll be something here that ought to jump out to you. And if not, it, it ought to at least begin to open your attention or eyes to something different. Namely, a thanksgiving. A couple weeks ago, we read the first chapter of Romans. And the first thing that, that Romans does is he, or when he writes to the, to the church at Rome, he says, hey, I'm Paul, writing a letter to you. He doesn't call off all his friends. It's more of an intimate letter, we think, such that he wants them to know it's from him for them. It says, grace and peace to you, glory to God, all that good stuff. And, and then he, and he does something that is his custom. In fact, it would have been the custom for most writers of any sort of letters, at least serious or official letters of this time period. He gives thanksgiving. He has a thanksgiving. If you want, you can even just turn over a couple of pages. Right after Galatians is the book of Ephesians. And you'll see there almost an identical introduction. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, right? His apostleship is in God's will. And then he gives this great blessing, a beautiful thing, especially in Ephesians. So much so that in verse 15, he transitions and he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He does this throughout every single epistle all the letters that he writes to these churches he's like blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ hear this good news i love you i'm for the philippians he said that thank god every time i remember you and and he opens this with great salutation and blessing rooted in the gospel and then he says and i thank god for you i thank god for what i hear about you i think i thank god for what he's doing in and through and among you but notice the tone here did you catch that Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's beautiful, right? Glory ultimately comes to God because of what he's done for us in Jesus. He gets the glory. This is where he would say, 
And I'm so thankful for you, Galatians. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for what God's doing in you. I'm so thankful for what, what is happening in and among you. What does he do? To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that is Jesus, who called you, that is God, excuse me, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Did you catch that? This is where he should say, Galatians, I'm so thankful for you. Thank God for all that's going on. And what does he do? He walks in and he says, I am astonished at you. I'm perplexed by you. This is a big deal. This, this is, these are harsh words. You know this, right? It's, if you had a choice from a disciplining parent to get like whippings or grounding or the I'm disappointed speech, you, you always go with the whippings, right? You all, I, ground, yes, ground me, by all means. Anything's better than the, I'm so disappointed in you. That cuts to the soul, right? Just, just hit me. Just let's whip me. Let's get this over with. Why, why are you doing this? Have you been there? And this is what Paul is a loving, caring father figure for this birthed church. He, he says, look, I'm astonished. I'm blown away. I, I am perplexed that you have deserted God who called you in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you've turned to a different gospel. I want you to see this. I want you to begin to, to apply this not only to the life of the church as Paul does for these Galatians, but I want you to see this is actually something that, that begins to infiltrate our sense of identity as individuals, as members of families, and we find here that the gospel declared by the apostles was a revelation of Jesus Christ such that anything that distracts from or diminishes this gospel is under the curse of God and is to be removed. The gospel, the good news passed on by the apostles to these people is a revelation, an eye-opening event of who Christ is for us. And it's such an absolutely important, climactic event in the course of history that if we were to distract from it, or if we were to make light of it, or if we were to make much of anything other than this thing that Christ has done for us, then we're in fact under a curse. If we are to say that something else other than what God has done for us in Jesus is good news, if it's the thing that we share, then we're actually under a curse. Anathema. We are cast out. And those things are meant to be eradicated and utterly removed. You see, this church was made up of a bunch of people who were highly religious. They were made up of a bunch of people who, who probably should have known better. They probably knew the Old Testament. Now, this is important for us. That in and of itself is, is something that's convicting for us because our city, the city we've been called to reach with the gospel, is not simply just full of rebellious, sinful people who are throwing off all restrictions and doing awful and evil things. Our city isn't just full of rebellious, sinful people who mock God and run away from God, and they need to hear the gospel, that there is redemption, there's new life. Our city is also full of a bunch of self-righteous, highly religious people who rebel and reject God's word for them because they think they know better. Our city isn't just full of rotten, sinful people. Rotten, sinful people that can be seen in their sinful rebellion. Our city is full of people 
that think they're actually good. Our city is full of people who believe that what they have done, their own obedience, their own ability to follow the rules, is what gives them standing. This is important because this letter is to a church in a context where the people who missed it the most, the people who were causing the most damage, the people who had abandoned God altogether, according to Paul's word here, were the people that believed they knew better. The people that were highly religious. That's important. There's a lot of us in this room where we would say something like, we were raised under the influence of the church, right? Like knowing who Jesus is isn't a mystery to us. For some of us, I mean, we, even, you know, we, we will talk about this like, hey, uh, you know, when did you become a Christian? When did Christ change your heart? And for you, it's hard to even nail that down because you're like, I, I, didn't, I don't remember a time where I didn't know who Christ was. I didn't ever know a time where I didn't remember that Christ was Lord. And here's what the, the Galatians were struggling with that Paul wants you and I to hear. You're probably the person. If you find yourself thinking, I've got this together. I know what the gospel is. I understand who Jesus is. I worship and love God. Paul says to the Galatians, you're probably the person that needs to hear this harsh word. I'm astonished at you. So this is who we are. Whether, whether we're like living in radical and rebellious sin against God and need to see that His way is better, that His redemption gives more joy and more peace, or if you're on the other side and you think you've got it figured out and you think your joy before God is based on your accomplishment, your knowledge, both of us need to realize that we may very well be in some way distorting the Gospel, diminishing it, drawing attention away from the perfect satisfaction that God has for us in Jesus Christ. So let's walk through how this looks for us very briefly, and then let's begin to talk about what this means for us as individuals, and let's begin to think about what this looks like in the life of our church. Maybe set our trajectory, maybe set for us a, a path that will begin to have safeguards against what Paul is convicting these Galatians of. This To add to the gospel, let's begin there, is to desert Jesus. It's to desert God and what He's done for us in Jesus. Notice that he, he, he doesn't just kind of come with like a, I don't know, like a, just like a philosophical, or theological, or intellectual argument of something that they might have been mistaken upon. He starts by accusing them of the ultimate thing that they've done in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quick, you are, that, excuse me, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What is this gospel? We talked about this two weeks ago. This is a kingdom that's come. We receive by faith. Our eyes are open to who Jesus is. It changes us. And even just to uh, begin to entertain the possibility that we have a new life in Christ is, is the beginnings of what it means to be born into that new life. Our eyes are opened. Our, our emotions are overwhelmed. Our, our intellect is absolutely flabbergasted. For us, it's a, a, a time of commitment, a time of transformation. However that conversion or being born again looks for you, it's God calling us in the grace of Christ, opening our eyes to this. And evidently, these people were not just intellectually kind of differentiating or, or diverging from something they ought to be corrected on. Evidently, they are deserting God. To trust in anything other than Christ is to desert God's work. Now we saw this, remember in, in the Gospel of John, some people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what? 
what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? Right? They ask a question that you and I would ask. What is the will of God? Tell me what to do. Give me a guru to tell me these five steps. And, and what does Jesus respond? He says, this is the will of God. This is the work of God to believe in the one whom he has sent. You want to do what God wants you to do? You trust in what he has done for you. You trust that it is accomplished. This is it. This is in its pure, unadulterated glory. God has accomplished something for us that, that we only can receive as gift. In fact, if we begin to lose the nature of this gift by trying to pay for it or to compensate for it, or even sometimes I, I, we kind of corrupt it by the ways we think we have to measure up to it or, or have the merit to receive this gift, we, we adulterate it, we destroy it. It's just a gift. What do you do with a gift? Well, if you pay for it, it's no longer a gift. If you don't take it, it's not for you. We receive it as gift. This is the grace of God that we now have good news. This, this is it. God wants us to trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if we appeal to something else, we've abandoned it altogether. So here's the context for these people, these religious people that we see elsewhere, that you'll hear them referred to as Judaizers or even legalists. Now, legalism is a, sometimes a, it's kind of like a swear word amongst, Christ, amongst Christians, and they throw it around when they ought not to. But, but most times, Christians just call people legalists when they don't like what they hear. Like, like if someone tells them you should obey Christ, and they go, well, you're a legalist, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who find their righteousness from the law or from legalities or from obedience, Judaizers. So what was happening here is this. These, this. This group of people was beginning to make an impact in their city. And people wanted to become Christian. They heard the gospel that Jesus had done something for them. And they, they said, well, we want to be in on that. We want to believe that. We want to, we want to trust in that. We want to have a life in accordance with that. And these Judaizers, these legalists, came along and said, first, then, you must be circumcised. So Jesus was a Jew. Jesus represented the Jewish people, the God's chosen people, the, the means by which God was going to work and demonstrate his love and adopting power in the universe. That's what, that's what these Jewish people were. And, and to be a part of this covenant community was to have the marks of the covenant, which was circumcision. Now, again, as I usually say, like, if you, if you want to know about that, go ask your parents, all right? This is not, it's not where I'm, I don't, it's not where I start talking about that, okay? But you can see that there's limits to this. That means that the people of this covenant had to be men. And this covenant was something that was demonstrated as an Old Testament community, a covenant that God ultimately demonstrated for them by, by not abandoning them, by keeping with them. And even though they rebelled against God, he kept his end of the covenant and, and covenanted to be for them. Well, these people in, in these Galatian churches, these Judaizers were, were saying to people who wanted to follow Jesus, yes, you can follow Jesus, but first you must become a Jew. First, you must have the marks and the sign of God's covenant community. Because you weren't born into this community like we are, then we want to show you the marks of what it really looks like for a person who's born into this community. And they would ask these people who wanted to follow Jesus to begin to take on the marks of the covenant. And instead of saying to them, the grace of God is a free gift that you receive now by faith in Jesus, they were saying that the grace of God first happens when you follow these steps. 
And they were basically saying you must be circumcised before you were a Christian. Make sure you get that. that. That may not seem like a big deal. In fact, that's a highly religious thing to do. Up to this point, in the course of history, in the course of the Bible, that would have been the right thing to do. But the right thing to do, this particular tradition, when it's placed in front of the grace of God in Jesus, is what? Desertion. Desertion. To put anything before Christ's sufficient gift for us is deserting God altogether. To put anything, to to exalt anything above the grace of God demonstrated for you and I in Jesus Christ is to lose the joy and salvation that he offers altogether. It is to, to desert it. Such that now, when someone hears this gospel, we simply present it as a gift. And we say, this gospel is accomplished for you. This kingdom is coming. Jesus has done this. Receive it as a gift. Your eyes are open to it. Believe it. Trust it. If you try to earn this, you will destroy it. If you try to pay for this gift, you destroy its utter definition as a gift. This is important. Because even now as I say this, there are many of you in this room Right now, you're like, okay, good, Jonathan, that's great. Now, what am I supposed to do? Get to the part of the sermon where you tell me what I should do and not do. Get to that part. I I like that part. Get to that part because I've been wondering what to do. I've got all these decisions about me. I don't know what job to take, what relationship to engage in. I don't know what steps to make. Can you tell me what I ought to do? And it seems here that if I take any of your attention, any at all, and point it toward what you ought to do next, rather than point your attention to what Christ has done for you, then I will be deserting God alone. I will be deserting and abandoning God. And that desire in you to know what to do and the next steps to take, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You ought to seek wisdom. You ought to ask God for wisdom. But if if what you do is more important than what Christ has done, then you've deserted God altogether. Now this is effective for all of us. For those of you in this room that you are shackled by your own sin and you are right now living in shame and you feel terrified that someone's going to find out about that thing that you did and you're afraid that someone's going to learn that you are worse than they first thought. I have good news for you. What Christ has done for you is greater than what you have done. And there is nothing that you can do. There is nothing so awful that you can accomplish that will begin to diminish the great thing that he has accomplished. But I have good news for you on the other side of the spectrum. The rest of you that are great rule followers, and you find a great deal of shame when people find out that you've broken the rules, and what you really think is important is how good you are and how little trouble you've been in, and you're, you're worried about your reputation, the way that people see you and approve of you, and you, you want to follow the letter of the law. You don't want anyone to, to think bad of you. I have good news for you. As good as you think you are, there is nothing that you can do that is greater than what Christ has done. In fact, your righteousness, the Bible tells us, is like disposable rags compared to God's righteousness for you. 
This good news covers the entirety of the spectrum. And for you to have a hindrance of something that you ought to do, whether it's good or bad, that keeps you from receiving the gift of what God has done for you in Jesus, means that you've deserted him altogether. So we're going to be a people who exalt Christ above all. We're going to draw people's attention to what he has done first. Before you even get to think about what you ought to do, we think about what Christ has done. Here's the second thing we see here, that serving Christ will mean losing the approval of people. Verse 10 says that, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Notice the dichotomy that he sets up there, that that to really trust Christ alone, to serve him alone, to see him as Lord and Savior alone, will cost you potentially the approval of others. So much so that he he seems to be making an accusation. Like, am am, am I worried about pleasing people? As if to say that what was really happening amongst the Galatians was that they were so afraid that people would find out that they weren't following the law, that people would find out that they weren't circumcising the people around them, that the people in there weren't, weren't born into the right family, that they had abandoned the truth that God ultimately is He who calls us into family. They were afraid of losing the approval of these people. We don't know. We do know that whatever the case was, that Paul sets up for them and for us a clear sense of distinction between the approval that comes from God and the approval that comes from people. You ought to hear Jesus' words echoing in the background, right? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot seek the glory of God and the glory of the people around you. And this is big for us. This is big for us. We, 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 we don't have a high shame culture necessarily, maybe like more, more Eastern countries, but we have, a, we have a strange derivative of it. And it's like a high uh, approval or ec- like acceptance culture. Like, like if the fate worse than death is that if you don't fit in. Like there is no fate worse in our culture right now than to not fit in. Now, this is playing out in different ways, and the way we respond is it's kind of changed the way that at least the secular world has talked about things like bullying, right? If you're not, if you're not accepted or if you're, you're passing on that lack of acceptance, then, then you're doing something that, at least in the secular world, these aren't Christians, but even in the secular world's eyes is saying, like, don't do that, because not to fit in is awful. And this is the narrative that's constantly playing in each of us. And it is the narrative, evidently, at least for the Galatians, and maybe for us, that will cost us the approval of God. Because to say that what you really want is the approval of people is to say that the approval of God isn't important. Now here's where we get to share the gospel again. Do you know what you need to do to win the approval of others? You know, don't you? You have a list in your head. And it haunts you. It fills you with regret and resentment. You know what you need to do to win their approval, right? Oh, you know what you need to do, and you know how you're not doing it. You know those people that don't approve of you, and you know that spot. You stop doing that. You get it, don't you? You have those things in in your own head? A job, a career, a vocation, a title, an accomplishment, an achievement, a relationship. That's what I need to do. That's how I'll win their approval. Do you know how you gain the approval of God? 
you look to the one who has already accomplished his approval for you. You receive the gift of his approval freely. And you see that when God looks at you now, he doesn't look at you the way they look at you. He looks at you utterly satisfied. We sang about this just a moment ago, that he rejoices over his own. And he is pleased with you, not because of your success or failure. He is pleased with you because of what Christ has done for you. And to begin to think that there is an approval that is more important than that is to lose the gospel and therefore lose our joy in it. The Bible elsewhere calls this the fear of man. So are you self-conscious? Beware. Your self-consciousness might be costing you the joy of the gospel. It did for these people. Thirdly, we see this, that we follow the teachings of Jesus, Christ alone, not human beings. Verse 11 says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me was not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he had this mighty revelation. He was walking on the road to Damascus, going to persecute Christ's church. Christ blinds him. Jesus shows up as this amazing thing where like, it's crazy. The people he used to be persecuting help him. Ananias helps him to see, right? It's like, I mean, there's just like, there's all these cool things that go on. And, and what he refers to it here is like a revelation from Christ. He saw God for who he was in Christ and his eyes were opened. Now we use the same exact language to describe what it means to be a Christian. So much so that we would say that, that, that to be a Christian isn't based on what you know or what you have done. It's on what Christ has done. And when your eyes have been opened to this, it changes what you do. It's a revelation. For some people, it's like a, it's like a light bulb coming on. I, I love talking to people about how they came to know and understand Christ. Because there's just a, a variety of ways that God reveals himself. And they all have just this unique and, and beautiful thing where like I was this and then all of a sudden I couldn't be that anymore. And all of a sudden, that was so deeply unsatisfying. And the thing that God opened my eyes to was just rich and full of joy. So that means that for us, we don't, can, we don't necessarily follow the uh, teachings of other people, but we look to the teachings of Christ. We saw this last week. Remember, what's the mission? Go. Make disciples of the nations. Doing what? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you the whole, every step of the way. So this is big for us. We think that the teachings of Jesus trump the teachings of people. The fourth thing I think we see here in verse 16 is that we do not consult anyone about multiplying biblical disciples. When Jesus says, make disciples, when Jesus gives us identity by the gospel and asks us to share that with others, we do not ask for permission. We simply assume that we are under orders. We assume, verse 16 tells us, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he took some time, traveled about, looked for some endorsement of some of these people, but in the end, he knew that his mission was from God. The mission to share the gospel with the nations didn't come from a clever idea. It came from a revelation of God. So too, we believe the same thing about ourselves, such that we now know that God has done something for us. And if you have a hang-up, if there's something that's keeping you from sharing this gospel, drawing attention to this gospel with the people around you, be careful. We don't ask for permission for this. 
We just do it. We, are we trying to please people? Or are we trying to obey and please God? This is a big deal for us. So here's where this lands us. If, if the Galatian church had a, had a problem seeing the gospel for what it was, if they had a natural tendency to put things in between people and Christ and ask them to jump through hoops before they became a Christian, rather than to say simply that in faith you are now united with Christ and like Him, then so also maybe our church and us as individuals can learn from this. And so we want to fight against these tendencies. If our tendency is to add to the gospel and therefore desert God, if our tendency is to serve people other than serving Christ, if our our tendency is to find other people's advice more appealing than Jesus' commands and his teachings, and if our tendency is to ultimately kind of wait before we have the approval of others before we jump madly into this, then here's what we ought to do. We will seek clarity about movement towards alignment with and focus upon Christ and his gospel. We're going to see Jesus for who he is. We're going to do everything we can to have clarity about who he is. We're going to have a movement towards him. We're going to have alignment with him and his person, and we're going to have a focus upon him. So what does that mean for us? If if the first tendency, according to verse 6, was to, to add things to Jesus, then what we want to seek most of all is a clarity about who Jesus is and what he's done. What this creates in us and this, I think, this is what I think, We have a fidelity to the biblical process of making disciples, multiplying churches. We are committed to sound and biblical and orthodox doctrine. And we really trust it. We we don't think of gadgets or things that ought to come on that are clever or pragmatic or seemingly more practical. We really are rooted in this old, old, old idea that Jesus started. And we're cool with that. We have clarity about who that is. This is what this means for you and me. This creates for us a culture of no. We have a culture of no. I share this with other people that I get a chance to disciple that what makes you a really faithful leader is not what you say yes to, it's what you say no to. Because everybody wants to say yes to all the cool stuff, right? Don't you want to do all the awesome stuff this week? Like all the good stuff that could be done this week. Don't you want to do all of it? You mean all this cool stuff this week? Yeah. You mean do all the good, great stuff this week? All the awesome stuff? Yes. I would love to do all the awesome stuff this week. Can you do it all? And so we as Christians, knowing our own limitedness, knowing our own humanity, seek to say no toward things that aren't ultimately glorifying to God and drawing attention to Christ's work. We get to say no. And this ought to set some of you free. Um, this is a badge of honor for us. This is a, a great badge of honor. Uh, the phrase, and, and here, here's what I, I think this changes, and this is going to sting. I love you. This is going to hurt. But we wear the phrase, I'm busy, like a badge of honor. We wear it like it's a sign of importance. Now, sometimes we don't say I'm busy, but we just have our phone out to show people that we are important. I've got things to do. Stay away from me right now. I've I've got things to do. And we wear it like a badge of honor. When in fact, for a Christian, that's a badge of shame. What that means is that you aren't dictating what happens with your time. Your time and your commitments are telling you what to do. This is important. Remember, this is, this is a, a tradition that we celebrate something called Sabbath, right? 
a day of rest. A day, a whole, whole day. A whole day. Crazy, right? It was so important it was one of the big ten. So important that God did it. Did God rest after he created the world because he was tired? No, he did it. Why? Because it's good. And he wants what's good. But we come along and go, a whole day? I'm too busy. So here's what I think that means. If you're too busy to obey God, you believe you're God. You believe that God's purposes and his will are less important than yours. And if you find yourself saying, I'm too busy for this. So if I tell you, like, hey, I want you to invest time and energy and resources into making disciples of the nations, and, and you find yourself going like, that? I don't have time for that. I don't have enough time. I already have so many things I'm doing. Do you know what we have freedom to do? This is going to blow your mind. The next time those commitments pop up, it's going to kill you. You say no. You say no. And you say no with no shame. You say there's something bigger. The glory of God. The glory of God will what we will, is what we will celebrate forever and ever. I'm, I'm going to do that. How does God want to be glorified? By drawing people to the gift of Jesus Christ. So we're going to invest in that. And here's what's, I know this is going to blow your mind. And we say no to everything else. What about my kids? My kids have a bunch of stuff. I can't make disciples. I have, I have to do with my kids' stuff. You, you, here, here, here's a fun one. Do you know why God gave you those kids? So that they would be disciples. Not that they would some, get some acceptance letter from Harvard, but they would realize their acceptance before God. Not that they were chosen to be on the varsity team, but they were chosen by a loving God before the foundation of the earth. You want to invest in your kids? Plant that in them. And say no to everything that draws attention away. This is big for us. This is going to hurt at first, but it gives us a great deal of freedom. You get your time back. You, you, and I don't know if you're sitting there going, like, I just have tons of spare time, and, and I don't know what you're talking about, Jonathan. But I just, I've never met that person. Um, I just, I'd, I'd love to get to know you, and I want you to teach me, right? I want you to, like, disciple me. How do you, what? Right, because this, this is a problem, and, and, and we blame failure on circumstances rather than on our own ability to just say no. So if we have clarity, clarity about who Jesus is, then we are clear about what is glorifying to God through Jesus and what is a distraction from it. And this is beautiful. You can say no. You can say no. Will it cost you? Yeah. I guarantee you it will. The second thing I think is that if, if, if our tendency is the, to want the approval of people, then here's an interesting part here, that we have a movement towards Jesus. We're designed to grow in this. Now, here's how this functions for us. I want you to, I want, I want, we try to make this as clear as possible. I want you to understand this. We want you to be a part of becoming a disciple. We want the nations who don't know Jesus to have their eyes open to this glorious gospel, be made disciples and followers of Jesus, and then to make other disciples of Jesus, such that, that that good news overflows out of you into the people around you. This functions differently on, on a lot of different ways, but we want to pour everything into this, such that every morning on a Sunday we get together and we celebrate it. We're like, Jesus is this, Jesus, 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 Jesus. All by Jesus, 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 Jesus. Follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Trust Jesus, trust Jesus. Get it? 
Over and over and over again. Every time. We gather with this gospel, and then we scatter with this gospel. Such that this is also something that takes place one-on-one. It takes place, and if if you're at a dinner table and there's a bunch of people, this is what you draw people's attention to. If you have anyone's attention, we draw attention to this. If anyone's listening to you for any period of time, we stop and go, hey, you need to know about this. This is what this means. There's a growth. So does God love you like you are? Yes. He loves and accepts you just like you are. But he loves you way too much to leave you like you are. He loves you. You're in a mess. You've gotten yourself in a hole. Your sin has put you in over your head. He loves you still. He loves you, but he loves you too much to leave you there. And so we, by the grace of God, begin to look more like Christ and less like the things that entangle us. We throw off every hindrance and set our sights on a prize that is Christ. This This is what we do. So there's a movement towards Christ. If you find yourself stuck and in a holding pattern, struggling with the same things over and over and over again, you will be continually uncomfortable around these people in this room because we love you too much to let you wander in that. We love you too much to let you be sunk in that. It also means that everything we do ought to be to push people towards Christ-likeness. And that means that rather than wanting the approval of others, we're willing to sacrifice and maybe even risk our friendships for the sake of speaking words of truth about Christ. If our goal is movement toward Christ and looking more and more like Christ, then that means this becomes a group of people that is honest about saying when something doesn't. Like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you when you don't look like Jesus. I'm going to tell you when that thing that you're doing or saying or posting distracts from the good news of Jesus. And it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you. I love you. Why? Because God loves you like you are, but loves you way too much to leave you like you are. He will continually shape you to look like Christ. Thirdly, if, if our tendency is to want to simply please others and follow the, the, the important teachings of all the gurus in our society, then here's, we have an alignment with Jesus' teaching. That is, we really believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture for the church. We really think that like, if you just like, pull the Bible out, let it shape you, uh, it works, and you look more like Jesus. It's like a rinse, lather, repeat. Rinse, lather, repeat. Like, oh, again? Yes, again, again. Floss every day? Yeah, I know. It wears me out too. Right? But like every day, because that's, that's what we do. And this is not a new idea. This is just who we are. And, and when people go like, I'm really struggling, we go, oh, he, well, here we go. Uh, again, I think this is what this says. This is who we are. We have clarity about this. We want a sense of alignment with the sufficiency of teaching. This also means we have focus. By focus, I mean we see what is clear and we're willing to abandon everything else. The foundation for the life of our church will be this one faith, the revelation of Jesus, such that we're willing to say no and cut off other stuff. Are there lots of good things that we could be doing as a church? Yeah. But we only want to do the things that draw attention to Christ and make disciples that will make disciples that will make disciples. That's, that's what we want to do. We think Jesus set this in stone for us and we're just going to run with it. 
And that means we get to say no to a lot of stuff that's really good. It also gives us a sense of freedom. At any given moment, if we do something and we're like, that didn't work. We don't, we don't like, this is cool because we're a church plant. We don't have to call like 14 committees together to think about not doing that again, right? But instead, we just get to go, hey, did that work? No, it didn't. How about we not do that again? Okay. Right? After all, if, if we want to have focus on Christ, then we can look at this stuff like, was Christ made manifest in that? Were there disciples that were made from that? And if not, we go, how about we don't do that again? Right, let's not do that again. Let's try something else. Let's be creative and innovative about ways to glorify Christ by making disciples. And let's just not do all the other stuff. This means that we're going to invest this way. So there'll be a time. Um, here's, here's where I get to ask you to pray. And this is where this, I think this sense of clarity and this sense of, uh, of simplicity about, about who Jesus is, like this will play out for us. So um, the school uh, that we rent from the district here has been so generous to us. We have loved uh, every interaction we've had with the people connected with the with the school and with the school district, they've just been awesome. But they have a policy that, that a church can't be the long like a long term tenant with them because after all, this isn't like a it's not a hotel, right? It's not a it's not an apartment complex, okay? So we're borrowing it from them, and we love that. We we rent it, we borrowing, we we give money for it, um, but like we borrow it in that sense. They they let us have it, and it's not what this is for. So we can't meet here more than three years. That means this next spring we'll have to make some options about where we meet and what we do. And there'll be a temptation. I, I want you to preach this back at me. There'll be a temptation to sacrifice the ministry of making disciples for the sake of a building. I mean, we want to have a building, great. But we have to be very careful because anything that hinders from the making of disciples, we want to be careful about. We don't want to go into debt unnecessarily. We don't want to spend a bunch of money. Why? Because it will distract from the ultimate thing that is the work of the Spirit in your lives. And anything that hinders that or distracts from that, we throw off. We have focus, clear. This also means that we can resist the temptation to be consumers of Christian culture. I'll leave you on this one. Walk into any, any Christian, I'm trying not to be cynical, but I just want to love you. Uh, like any Christian bookstore that you walk into, you see this. You have to walk all the way to the back to get to the books. You know the Bibles, the commentaries, the Bible studies? You got to walk through like four aisles of Christian decorations, right? By this you shall know that you're my disciples, that you put crosses and fish on your stuff, right? Prayer of Jabez knitted for your coffee table. You think I'm joking. You got to walk through all of this Christian stuff to get to the content of the Christian message at the back. You have to walk through like, like bad, shallow, devotional books. You have to walk through like some pretty awful stuff to where you finally at the back of the store, the very back, this is where the Bibles are. Get it? Get it? May that not be said of us. May we not have to sift through a bunch of distracting junk that fakes and looks like Christianity to get to the heart of the gospel that gives us identity. When people come in contact with you and me, with your family and friends and my family and friends and this church, may they not have to sift through all the junk to get to Jesus. May they not be tempted to buy into all sorts of other trinkets and distractions. May they be, see clearly that Jesus is a gift, is precious, 
and deserves to be front and center at all times. May they not have to sift through any meaningless or helpless kinds of things to get to the true help that is Jesus and his eternal accomplishment for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for your gospel. We, uh, God, we relate with the Galatians. It just, just seems like we should be doing something more catchy or something more, uh, something, something that, that's just more exciting and more fun. And we're convinced that there are so many other things that, that are better than this. And, we confess it. We, we would rather talk about anything but you. We would rather make this about us. God, would we hear these words of Paul to this Galatian church and hear them as words to us to throw off every hindrance, to, to see Christ as the most glorious thing. Therefore, we sing of him, we tell of him. If there's some in this room, there, uh, maybe, maybe the gloriousness of Jesus Christ just seems, uh, seems too far-fetched to believe. Uh, would you begin even now, compel them to trust, to trust in something that, that seems just bizarre. Would, would they begin to open their eyes to the possibility that you might have brought them here, of all places, so that they would hear and believe this good news? For those of us who know this good news, but we're just tempted to make, uh, make much of anything but you, we thank you for your goodness, and we repent of this. We we, we are distracting at times. Allow us to throw off these things and see you as most glorious. Allow us to repent of the things that we've put in front of you. Allow us to repent of the things that, that we've confessed to be Lord over our lives, but those things are, are you, or they're hindrances from knowing and trusting you. Allow us to call them idols as they are. God, as we begin to see you for who you really are, would you begin to give us the grace and courage to say no to everything else? As you grant us hope and joy in Jesus, would you give us the ability, the supernatural ability, to say no to any attempt to find joy anywhere else? We love you for this. Only you can accomplish this. It's only for your glory that we ask it in your name. Amen.